Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Back in 2016, a bizarre story emerged in pop culture. Professional wrestler Hulk Hogan won a $115 million lawsuit against the gossip website Gawker for publishing a sex tape of him that had been made without his consent. The victory was somewhat surprising, but the real surprise was who was actually behind the lawsuit. It wasn't Hogan himself, but the billionaire founder of PayPal, Peter Thiel. Thiel had his own axe to grind against Gawker and had been honing it since 2007. In fact, he been plotting to take down Gawker for almost a decade. And what may sound like a tawdry story of celebrity and scandal actually contains surprisingly potent lessons on revenge, stoicism, strategy, perseverance, hubris, privacy, and the underrated power of secrets. My guest today dug into the story and its insights in his new books, Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. His name is Ryan Holiday. I've had him on the show several times. He's the author of Growth Hacker, Marketing, The Obstacles of the Way, Ego's the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic. Today on the show, Ryan and I discuss his latest book, and the lessons we can take from a story that reads much like a modern-day Count of Monte Cristo. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash conspiracy. Ryan joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Ryan Holiday, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a while. So yeah, it's uh, I think you're, this is a three-peat for you. I think you're one of is the that a, Is that a record? I th- well, no, it's not a record, but like there's like it's it's exclusive company. I think there's like only okay. two or three people who've, who've done the three-peat. I'll take it. Well, you got a new book out. It's called Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker and the Anatomy of Intrigue. So this is a book about one of the most bizarre legal cases in American media history. And I'm, we'll get into the de- some of the details later on for those who aren't familiar with it. But I'm curious, how did you end up being the guy who sort of wrote the history of this weird case involving billionaires, uh, a millionaire, media mogul, and the Hulk? Well, how'd that happen? I, in some ways, I have, I have no idea. It caught me as much by surprise as I think it caught anyone else. In some ways, I think it's, you know, a little bit of right place, right time. But to me, it's also, this is why you put yourself out there and you take risks and you try to write about different things that I'd, I'd written pretty extensively about media over the years. And I wrote a column about this case because I was following it in the news. Just the, the idea of this billionaire plotting in secret for 10 years to, get revenge was was my initial take on, on what had happened. And I wrote this article about it. And Peter Thiel, who was that billionaire, sent me an email about it after. And so he and I started talking. And then I wrote a column about why people should stop watching the news, how we consume way too much news. And I sort of took a philosophical take on this. And then I got an unsolicited email after that from Nick Denton, who was the founder of Gawker, who was the company Teal had taken his revenge out on. And so I, I was sort of thinking about doing a book, and then I had access to both these two principles. It, it occurred to me I'm probably, I was probably the only person on the planet talking to these two mortal enemies. And then I just sort of floated the idea to my publisher and... It was it was off off to the races, and it was really intimidating and scary. Obviously, not having written in this sort of narrative nonfiction form before, and you know, writing about a guy who just bankrupted a hundred million dollar company he didn't like, and, and, and you know, it was, so it was scary in a lot of ways. But I, to me, mostly that those are the exactly the kind of projects you want to take on as a writer. And so, 
all those things kind of came together, and the book is a result of that. Wait, and how did you approach this book? Because okay, we'll get into like it's about a sex tape, right? <laughs> and so it's it'd be easy to be just focusing on that and the sort of details of that, but you didn't do that. You 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 seem to take a more of a philosophical approach and and how you retold the story and also like what we can learn from it. Well, one of the weird things, because this has obviously been an intensely reported story and involves Silicon Valley and New York media and the media itself and the first amendment and a professional wrestler, you know, it's, it's all these things. So it's been covered by journalists a lot. And what I felt like they fundamentally got wrong. And I think we see this across the board with a lot of media coverage and you know when when people watch sports and have comments or when they follow politics and have comments people want to argue with other people's motivations right so you know peter thiel said he did this because he thought it was about justice and it was about you know improving the world and then everyone in the media said no that's not true you did this because you, you know you were afraid or you were evil or all these things And you can't, it's like, if I tell you, Brett, that I'm offended, you can't argue with me over whether I'm offended or not. But what you can do is take the time to figure out why I feel the way that I feel. And so what I try to do in the book, ultimately, and this was a stretch for me as just a human being who had preconceived notions myself, is like, okay, why did this guy who who's worth billions of dollars, who could do anything he wants with his time, who's founded these enormous companies, you know, PayPal, he's the first investor in Facebook, he's a founder of Palantir. Why on earth would he have spent all this time on this thing? It must have been really important to him. And he must have had some sincere motivation. So I'm going to ask him and I'm going to figure out what that is. And I'm going to try to express it as vividly and as deeply as he feels it. And then on the other hand, it's not as if Gawker and, and we'll sort of, I guess, sort of drop in little hints of the story, but the, the reason Teal and Gawker were opposed to each other is that a Gawker writer in 2007 had outed Teal as gay. Now, when Gawker wrote this article, they weren't thinking, what's the, the cruelest, meanest, scummiest thing that we can do? They were thinking, that this was important, that this was newsworthy. Like they had their own motivations. There's this line from Socrates where he says, nobody does wrong on purpose. And so one of the premises of the book for me was like, let's figure out why everyone did what they did and try to explain it. And once we, once we lay this all out, then the reader can judge who's the good guy or the bad guy. I think too much of what we see and read and hear these days is, designed to tell us how other people feel rather than get, you know, rather than get to the truth of that actual feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so let's get in some of the, like, get some background for this, because okay. I, I, I want to delve into some points, but I think it's important for, we got, we got to understand the, the sort of the story. Uh, yes. So you mentioned uh, there was a, a website called Gawker, mm-hmm. 2008, published an article outing Peter Thiel as gay. Well, talk about Gawker. I mean, what what for those who aren't familiar with Gawker, what is Gawker and what sort of websites do they run? Gawker starts as a blog in, in Nick Denton's living room. The first one is about tech gadgets. The second is about gossip. And it very quickly just explodes. Tens of millions, eventually billions of pages a month and a year. And it, it is a, a website that sort of revels in being an outsider and revels in critiquing and holding powerful people to account. That's how they see it. Now, a couple tweaks on that. So one, Gawker loved to write the stories that other people wouldn't write. So if there was a, if there was a rumor that someone else was, you know, didn't feel had been verified, Gawker would, that's, that's the kind of story that Gawker would love to run. If, if someone had stolen something and, and was trying to leak it to the media and the media was like, well, I don't know where this came from. That's the kind of scoop that Gawker wanted. And then on top of this, Gawker was the website that pioneered the, the strategy of paying their writers, at least in part based on how much traffic their articles do. So it was this explosive, controversial media company that starts really small. It stays independent and then it becomes incredibly powerful by writing the kinds of gossipy, dark, no holds barred stories that that readers love to eat up. All right. So, and then in 2008, they wrote a, just sort of an offhand article. Peter Thiel 
is gay. Yeah, in two in 2007, they published an article, and the headline was, Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. And it's an anonymously sourced article that, that, that posits that Peter Thiel, who is essentially an unknown person outside Silicon Valley at that time, is, is not only gay, but Nick Denton speculates at the bottom of the piece that there's something ba- that, why is he so secret about it? What is he hiding? Why is he ashamed of being gay? And this is Teal's rude introduction to this media company and how they work. And also, you know, Denton is also gay. So it was kind of Denton is gay and the writer who writes it is gay. And, and, and this is actually sort of an MO of Gawker. They, they, they outed, they were one of the first to report that Anderson Cooper was gay. They've, they've outed a number of other people. And, T, and Denton would say that he believed that it was only out of a misplaced sense of decency that media outlets refused to do what Gawker was doing. So it, it is a strange, contrarian, unusual worldview that Denton and Gawker has. And that's what puts them on this collision course with Teal. So, okay, Teal got out and he didn't like that. I mean, what, why, why is that? Because like, this is 2007, this is the 21st century, you know, acceptance of homosexuals is, you know, pretty mainstream at this point. Why was Teal so, why did this, we gotta go back, why this upset? we gotta go back in time. I mean, you know, Prop 8, which bans gay marriage in California, hasn't even been passed yet. It, that's months in the future. You know, like, Obama obviously hasn't been elected in 2007, and he himself and Hillary Clinton, neither of them have come out in favor of gay marriage. So it's, it's, it, it is not what it is today back then. But I think primarily what Teal objects to is why the hell is this anyone's business? Like, uh, I don't know the sexuality of any of the other early investors in Facebook. And I think his point was, why, why are you writing this about me? What did I ever do to you? And, and even if you are writing it about me, why are you writing it in such a cruel and mean way? Why are you implying that there's something wrong with me for wanting to keep this private piece of information private? And so he stews on this. You know, he doesn't do anything right away. He can't. It's not illegal to out someone. It's certainly in bad taste, but it's not illegal. And so for, for the next several years, literally years, he just sort of despairs of being able to do anything about this. He meets Gawker writers and he asks them, and he asks them about it. He, he talks to a sort of a notorious New York City sort of fixer, a lawyer and, and PR genius. And they're basically like, look, this is the new reality for you. You are going to be a target for these websites. You've just got to take it. And Teal, he just doesn't like that. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to have to accept that. So he stews on it. And he kind of, I think he kind of resigned himself to the fact that there's nothing he could do about it because, you know, Gawker could always claim First Amendment, right? Yes. Uh, and that was and a, it's- a big protection for them. To- totally. And, and right, rightfully so, right? I mean, the, it is, the media has v- special protections and centuries of precedent protecting its right to do what it had done to Teal. And it's, so it's not until 2011, so four plus years later, that Teal has a dinner in New York City with a young man. Teal, obviously, as an investor, is always looking for sort of ambitious young people who he can place in startups or invest in. And he meets with this this kid, really. I, I call him Mr. A in the book. He has not yet been identified. And Mr. A essentially pitches to Teal. He says, look, I know what Gawker did to you was 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 upsetting, but not illegal. But here's the thing. I think they may have done other things that more clearly cross various legal lines. Maybe it's copyright violations. Maybe it's invasions of privacy. It's intentional infliction of emotional distress. You know, maybe it's defamation. Maybe it's libel. Maybe they've done other, like a website that would push the boundaries so far in what they did to you may have pushed it more egregiously so in other instances. And he says, I have a plan. I have a a legal firm I think we can work with. And I think with about a $10 million budget and three or five, three to five years of runway, I think we can take these people down. And, and he, he says, I think the world would be a better place if you did this. And Teal says to him, look, I've, I've thought about this. There's nothing you can do about it. And Mr. A looks him in the eye. It's incredible that this 26-year-old kid would do it. And he says, um, Peter, it, if everyone thought that way, what would the world look like? 
And that's sort of exactly what Thiel needed to hear. And he, he ends up backing what I call a conspiracy for the next five years on the spot. He, he basically gives him a, uh, an unlimited budget and says, uh, let's do this. Okay, so there's a lot, there's some stuff, that's some great stuff because we're going to unpack which some of the stuff you just talked about. Right. How did they end up representing or paying for the whole Colgan case? So how did they connect there? So, so Teal's, again though, Teal puts up this money, but it's not money that's going to win win this sort of war uh, against Gawker. What Teal knows is that he needs the right case, right? If Teal had thrown $10 million, again, litigating his case against Gawker that they'd outed him, he would have lost. And so what he and Mr. A do, and the, the lawyer that they ultimately hire and, and his team do, is they begin to troll through Gawker's archive to find examples of it potentially violating laws in various places. And they don't find anything that immediately stands out. And they do this for about a year. And it's not until October of 2012 that Gawker runs a stolen sex tape of the professional wrestler Hulk Hogan that had been recorded without Hogan's consent by his best friend, of all things, uh, that, that they realize that, that they may have the case of a lifetime here. And so, again, I know some of these sensational details might just seem like, uninteresting to people or unimportant. But I think what I've tried to do in the book and what I think is so important about what Teal did here is that he didn't just rush into this. First, he waits, then he assembles the right team. But then most importantly, he waits for the right opportunity. And, you know, he said to me that that capital wasn't the, the scarce resource. It was having the right creative idea. And so he has this patience to wait literally like several years until this Hulk Hogan opportunity comes his way, that, that then they're able to file a $100 million lawsuit on Hogan's behalf. Gawker has no idea that Teal is responsible. They totally laugh the case off. But it be, it's because Teal had the patience, like a great investor, to wait for the right opportunity that he's able to put himself in a position to win. Okay. So yeah, they end up winning the case. Yes. Let's talk about... Like the lessons from that. So that's what I loved about this book. Sure. It was sort of like um, you know something like Machiavelli or Plutarch would write. Right? Yes. They would take these like just these you know stories of intrigue and like what can people learn about this about being about morality about strategy etc. Let's talk about you, you've written that Peter Thiel is a high agency person. What do you what do you mean by that? What are the attributes of a high agency person? Well, I'm, I'm honestly, it's very flattering <clears throat> to me that you said Plutarch because that was sort of a model for me writing the book. You know, Plutarch has this this series called Parallel Lives, where he, you know he sort of contrasts and compares really epic people like a Cicero and a Caesar. And in some ways, I feel like Nick and Peter are people like that. So that that's what I tried to do in the book. And a high agency individual is also like a those epic characters from history that we love, I think would fall in that category. The phrase comes from from someone who works with Peter, a guy named Eric Weinstein, who's this sort of brilliant mathematician and, and economist. And he says that, you know, there are people who, when they hear no, accept that they've heard a no. And then there's people who the hearing no begins a very different conversation for them, that they try to see what can be done. They don't accept that no. And I think Teal and Mr. A are good examples of that. Originally, you know, Teal said it took him a while to get there to be a high agency person. But when he, he, he just doesn't like being told that there's nothing you can do about this situation. And I think that's why he stews on it for so long and why he lights up when he hears Mr. A's plan, because he's like, oh, I don't have to accept this. And if, if everyone in the world accepted everything that they didn't like, Things would never change and they would certainly never get better. And so he, he seizes on this slim but ambitious plan to do something about Gawker because he's a high agency individual who does not want to resign himself to the status quo. And how do you think, you know, one becomes a high agency person? Like, is there something about Teal's background that is it genetic? Is it temperament, upbringing? Or can you actively decide, like, I'm just going to not take no for an answer no matter what? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, look, entrepreneurs are by definition high agency individuals. Like you're trying to make something where there isn't a thing before. So that's part of it. But I think it's, it's about practice. You know, Teal had started one company. He'd started another company. He'd started a third company. He'd done this. And he, so he'd experienced many times in his life, people telling him that things were the way they were for a reason and that they couldn't be changed. And that it was impossible for a little guy to beat the big guy or for, you know, uh, this person to do this or that. And so I think he, he'd slowly built up this sort of reservoir of confidence that told him, I don't have to listen to these people. You know, he, he has a quote that I, I have in the book. He was talking about, he's like, actually, I'm not that worried. He's like, I'm not that interested in things that people don't, don't think are possible. Right. He's like that. Th- those things are kind of interesting to me. He's like, what's really interesting to me, the things that I think I'm really right about are the things that other people aren't even thinking about at all. And so what was so incredible about this conspiracy is that no one, it's not like people suspected that something was behind it and they just didn't know who. It's that literally no one even considered something was happening, myself included. You know, one of the Gawker editors uh, says this, he's like, we scarcely could have believed that something so conspiratorial could have happened. And of course, that's exactly why it happened. And so I think Teal specializes in finding the things that other people don't think are, are, are viable. And that's what he bets on. And ideally, he wants to be underestimated or not even considered at all because that's where the really big opportunities are. Yeah, that's uh, that goes counter to how a lot of people approach success in our modern world. Like They want as much attention as possible, but Teal likes to fly under the radar. Yeah, you know, he, he has a line. I think a lot of us sort of gravitate towards where there's competition, right? Lots of people want to be professional football players, so we think that would be fun. Or we hear, you know, lots of people go to Harvard, so we want to go to Harvard because it must be good because a lot of people want to go there. And I think Teal's point, you know, Teal has this line in his book, Zero to One, which everyone should read, even if you don't like Peter, even if you disagree with him. And he says, competition is for losers. And I love that line because it's true. You know, what you ideally want to do is find where there's no competition, where you're the only one. You know, when you launched uh, Art of Manliness, it's not like there was 500 other Art of Manliness websites, you know, manliness websites, and you were just 10,000 times better than them. It's that you were the only one. And so what's interesting now is like someone might be listening to this and they see what you're doing and they're like, oh, I'm going to make a website about how to be a man or how to be a better man. And that's, that's actually the wrong lesson. What you should do is find something new or different that was as new and groundbreaking as Art of Manliness was when you started it. And, and so that's what I try to do with my books. And I think that's what Teal tried to do with this conspiracy. He tried to do the thing that no one even thought was possible. Right. Yeah. So that competition is for losers. He makes a point. That's a good point about strategy, right? Because um, yes. competition is costly. Uh, yes. You have to spend a lot of money outcompeting your competition in war. War is extremely costly. You know, it's like lives and money. But like, but the conspiracy thing, like, okay, let's talk. So this is basically a story of revenge because I thought it was interesting. I, when I was reading this, I was like, man, this is just like the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. And what he did was an act of competition. Like he had to spend a ton of money, sure. a ton of bandwidth and a ton of, so like, how does that jive with his idea that competition is for losers? And here he is, is, you know, secretly, but he's, he's competing. That's true. But, but let's think about it, it. The difference between say a war and a conspiracy, right? So sometimes conflict is inevitable, right? Two people have two competing visions or two people are jockeying for something. And so one of them, only one of them can be victorious. So Machiavelli talks about this. He says, look, only the really powerful or the reckless can afford to go to outright war with each other, right? Like two armies in the field clashing. But, but Machiavelli says a conspiracy is more secretive and effective and can be wielded by anyone. And so what Teal didn't do is sort of announce that he was going after Gawker and that he was going to destroy them. And he didn't, you know, Nick Denton said this to me. He's like, why didn't Teal just write about what his, his critique of us and start a conversation about it? 
And Teal's point is that that wouldn't have worked. That's why he didn't do it. What Teal said was, I'm not going to let them know that I'm coming for them. For them, I'm going to operate in secret. I am going to find a weak point or an undefended, you know, sort of chink in their armor. And that's where I'm going to plow all my resources. And so in some ways, it's like, um, you know, it's like finding the, the, the exhaust vent in the Death Star. You're not trying to win a, a war of attrition necessarily, or you're not trying to, to just match strength against strength. You're trying to put strength against weakness. And so what Teal did here, again, first off, by just not even pursuing his own case, but by pursuing other cases, he's already put Gawker at a disadvantage because they don't know who they're fighting against. But then he looked for the most egregious violations that they'd made, and he did it in things that they didn't expect to be attacked for. Like, if you're a celebrity and a stolen sex tape of you is run on a website, the last thing you would rationally do is sue about it. Because you're only going to draw more attention to it. And, and so what Teal did by sort of taking care of Hulk Hogan and said, look, you don't have to spend a dollar of your money here and you can keep all the winnings if you win. You just have to let me back this on your behalf. He was catching Gawker off guard because they didn't think Hulk Hogan was going to go the distance on this hundred million dollar lawsuit. They just assumed he would settle at some point and then this would all go away. So, stay on this idea of revenge. This is interesting because you you've you've written a lot of books about stoicism. That's we've had you on the podcast talk about stoicism, and the stoic would probably tell Peter Thiel, "Well, you know, if someone writes this mean thing about you, you just ignore it, right? Like you don't have any control over that. Just move on with your life." But he didn't. Like, sure, no, no, that that's a great point, and and you're absolutely right. The Stoics would would say that. I mean, Marcus Aurelius has a great quote. He says, "The best revenge is to not be like that." Right? To if you think what Gawker did was disgusting and vile, your best revenge is just to be a better person. And so, but again, this goes to my original point: is I'm not arguing with what Teal felt or whether he should have felt that or not. He felt that this was deeply wrong. And, and, you know, the Stokes are also advocates for justice. And, and, and I think what Teal felt ultimately was that what Gawker did to him and to other people wasn't simply mean or hurtful, but was genuinely wrong and needed to be stopped. And so I think he told himself that this was this quest of good against evil. And I, I don't make any judgments about that because that's what he felt. And we should try to understand what he felt just as we should try to understand what Gawker felt. However, what, what I think that quest allowed him to do was rationalize this partly revenge, part, this, partly this quest of revenge and allowed it to make it bigger than himself. So he didn't have to stop and think, Hey, am I doing this for me? Or is this actually about other people? And and look, re- revenge is very dangerous. I mean, look, two two famous expressions about revenge. You know, revenge is a dish best served cold. You know, we think that's about taste. But the more that I thought about it, it's that the dish is hot. You don't want to touch the dish, right? You'll burn yourself. And so you need that patience. And so that was one of the things that Teal had. But the other famous saying about revenge is, if you set out on a journey of revenge, first dig two graves. And there's a cautionary element of that story for in this story for that reason. I mean, Teal sets out to to fight this battle for his privacy and he ends up becoming more famous as a result. And he ends up, you know, doing I think some things you could only charitably describe as it's quite dark as, as in in pursuit of this revenge. So it was not without cost to Teal either. And that's the thing. If you're thinking about revenge, you've really got to weigh those costs and, and, and benefits because it might not be as satisfying as you think. Right. Yeah. And there's that other line too about be careful who your enemies are because you end up like them or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And that, that was something that one of Teal's friends told him. And he, you know, he obviously pursues it anyway. But, you know, there's an argument to be made that in some cases, Teal and Gawker just switch places at the end of the story. Like at the end, you know, Teal is the powerful one who destroyed someone, who, uh, you know, embarrassed and humiliated them. The, you know, there's also the quote, uh, those who fight monsters must be careful that they do not become a monster. And, 
And that, so that, that's what's so epic about this story. And, and I think we should remember, you know, when you read history, when you read Plutarch or Machiavelli or, or, or even Homer, like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, none of the characters are fully good or bad. They embody these sort of larger than life traits that we're supposed to learn both what to do and also what not to do. And I think there's a lot of that in Peter. And I definitely think there's a lot of that of, of, of Gawker and Nick Denton, you know, hubris is probably the main theme on both sides through this book. Yeah, how, how do you think, how do you think, I mean, Gawker's obviously hubristic because they just thought they could do anything and get away yeah. with it. How, I mean, how did Teal display hubris? Well, first, I mean, he thought he could get away with this, right? Like, he not, not only did, did he think he would never get caught, at the end, a, as this case was sort of winding towards its verdict and it became very clear to him that they were going to win, he still ends up pursuing other cases, several other cases on behalf of other clients against Gawker that are so sort of over the top and much less legitimate, I would say, like appear to be much less legitimate than the other, than the Gawker case. And, and enough of this happens in a small amount of time. Plus Peter has begun to loosen his lips, right? He, he starts telling privately like other people that he's been doing this. And eventually all of this contributes to his identity being revealed after the verdict. Like he could have gotten away with this had he been, had, had his discipline not relaxed, even just a, a, you know, a half breath the way that it did, perhaps he would have gotten away with it. And, and I think he regrets that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of war strategists have said that the most dangerous time in war is at the point of victory. And yes, that's what happened here. Yeah. I mean, Robert Greene talks about this, you know, do not go past the point that you aimed for. And I think Teal, you know, Teal wanted to win a knockout blow against Gawker, but ends up, you know, piling on after. And actually I would talk to Hulk Hogan about this and he would say, look, that's a lesson that I learned in wrestling is you're winning. But if you beat up too much on the other guy, the crowd turns on you and the, the hero becomes the villain. And I think that's part of Teal's story. I mean, look, he's a billionaire and he kind of likes, you know, controversial contrarian things. So I don't think it's like keeping it, keeping him up at night, but you know, I do think it would have been easier and better for him had he managed to get away with this entirely. And, and part of the reason that he didn't is that he, he just told one too many people because he was so proud of it. Yeah. Well, so this, this book is called conspiracy. You call what Teal did. It was a conspiracy because, okay, conspiracy is a, it's a, it's a legal term, right? It's a, it's something that's done in secret when there's more than one person involved. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I think it's typically something that's like disruptive, right? right. Like you don't conspire Two friends don't conspire to go get ice cream, right? But you might, you know, you might conspire to get a ma- the mayor of your town impeached, or you might conspire to, you know, start a protest for civil rights. You know, like there, there are things you can conspire to do. They, they're typically disruptive. That's not to say positive or negative, but they are disruptive. So yeah, but like we live in a society, an age that puts a premium on transparency. Right, like we don't like secrets. Right, but you know, from reading the book, I mean, you kind of get the impression that wow, no, secrets can actually be very powerful—a powerful tool in getting things done. Why? Why is that? Why? Why are secrets so good in getting? Like, why was Teal obsessed? Because it seems like he was a very private person. Right. What What's his background that made him think that privacy, secrecy, not being fully transparent, actually could help you get more stuff done? Well, you know, there's this line from Napoleon where he says, never do what your enemy wants you to do for the reason that they want you to do it, right? Like, if someone says you should do something, it's probably better for them than it is for you. And so I think one of the interesting things about secrecy is the fact that people don't want you to keep secrets is probably evidence that there's something powerful or valuable in secrecy, right? And so I think Teal's point is like, why would I tell Gawker that I was coming for them if that would make it easier for them to defend themselves? You know, and we see this now in this social media world that we live in. It's like, you have to tweet about every friggin' thought that you have, you know, the idea, like, like people, for instance, are always asking me, it's like, what's the next book that you're working on? And it's like, why would I tell, unless there was a clear marketing purpose, because it's done, why would I want to alert my competition that 
of what I'm working on and give them a chance to beat me, you know, or, or give them a chance to undermine my argument or be prepared to, to undermine it. And so I think part of what secrecy is, is about planning and trying to do something ambitious enough that there are going to be people who want to stop you. And those are precisely the people that you want to keep your secrets from. And so I think that that is one element of it. The privacy element, I think, is 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 related but distinct. I think Teal's point about privacy is that, look, we've got to give people room to have controversial thoughts, to try different things, to be different or weird. You know, what a, what Gawker did was sort of was a was a, a non-discriminating hater, right? Like they would make fun of anyone for anything. So if you tried something and failed, Gawker loved that because they would make fun of you for it. If you had a weird belief, Gawker would make fun of you for it. If you, I don't know, took a risk and tried to, you know, do something different and, you know, with your clothes, Gawker would make fun of you for it. If you tried to explain yourself about some controversial issue and you failed, Gawker would nail you for it. And so all of this is this sort of intense scrutiny and criticism of people instead of giving them space to experiment and try things. And I think that has a, a, a societal and cultural cost of making us more conservative and risk averse. And it also prevents, you know, the, the way to have good ideas is to have lots of bad ideas, right? But if we, if we mock and criticize everyone for every bad idea, and conversely, if we tweet every bad idea that we have, we're not going to have the space that we need to filter the good from the bad. Right, yeah, because people won't let you live it down. I mean, that's the thing I've noticed, right? Yes. They'll, they'll always remind you that your bad idea and it'll dog you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and, and then people who are afraid of that will stop even trying at all. And it's very, I think Teal's point is it's very hard to measure what we lose because of that, but it's probably very, very costly. You know, like we want, we say we, you know, we admire someone like Elon Musk, but we don't really create room for there to be more Elon Musks because we, we, we hit them so hard early on in their career before they become Elon Musk that we prevent that from ever happening. Yeah. Well, the other problem, I mean, one of the problems with conspiracies is that you have conspirators that are in on the secret, right? Would have been Franklin say like once like two people know about secrets, no longer yeah. a secret. Right. How did Teal keep the funding of his lawsuit a secret for so long? Like, you know, you had Hogan, and that could have just bailed on this at any moment. He had all these people who knew about it, but they didn't disclose. Like, how how did he keep that that sort of um, that tightness um, for in, in the group for so long? Well, that that's a great point because it it also helps you realize like why most conspiracy theories aren't true. You know, like when people talk about you know was nine eleven an inside job? The amount of people that would have had to be in on that conspiracy for it to be real is just so improbable that it can't possibly have happened. But in this case, what Teal did was Teal hired Mr. A. Mr. A hired Charles Harder, who's the lawyer, and Charles Harder solicits representing Hulk Hogan. So, so there are all these layers that are obscuring who's really behind it. So the lawyer and Hulk Hogan both uh, are in the dark about who is actually funding this lawsuit. They just know that a business person is funding. So that was their secret, but they didn't even know the secret they were keeping. They didn't even know the full secret that they were keeping. And I think that was a big part of it. Like, you know, let's say you have a company and you have this larger strategic vision. Obviously, certain people in the company need to know it, but not everyone in the company needs to know everything about it, right? Like down to the the doorman doesn't need to know everything that you're doing. And, you know, Apple, for instance, is a very secretive company. And that's part of how they managed to surprise us with all these amazing products is that news isn't getting out as it's happening. And so we don't have super high expectations each time we're we're kind of caught off guard. We're like, wow, I didn't even know that I wanted that. And then, so, so secrecy is important for a lot of reasons and there's a lot of ways to do it. You know, there, there's this line from a, from a Roman general that I quote in the book and one of his men says, you know, what time are we moving out tomorrow? You know, uh, are we marching? And the general says, if my shirt knew the answer to that question, I would burn it. 
right? Like he's like, no one is going to know except me. And that's going to give us an edge over our enemy because the more people that know, the more likely it is that the enemy will find out. So how did this, how did all the players in this story turn out? Like what happened to Denton? Like he lost his hundred million dollar company. Yeah. A $300 million company. Okay, $300 yeah, million. That's, that's a big deal. So like, what happened to him? So, so right. So the, the verdict comes back. It's a $140 million verdict. It bankrupts the company. They have to sell it off. Denton, Denton leaves the company. The sort of two interesting players are, are, are Nick, who is the owner and founder of the company, and then a guy named A.J. Delario, who was the editor who ran the story of the, the Hogan sex tape. And what's so interesting about them, you know, uh, what I say in the book is that although Teal wins, there's very, very rarely much character in winning, right? Like winning sort of doesn't often make you better. But on the other hand, Denton and Delario lose everything. And there often is a lot of character in, in losing everything because it forces you to question so many things. And, and one of the weird twists of the story and, and why I was motivated to write the book is that it turns out that both Denton and Delario turn to stoic philosophy and and actually happen to have read my books because they were they were looking at how to sort of pick up the wreckage of their lives and move forward because that's the only thing that you can do. And so, you know, AJ uh, ends up, you know, going into recovery and 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 gets clean and sober and he has a family now and he's trying to sort of rebuild his life as a writer and then, you know, it is had gotten married and is thinking about starting a family and has moved to Europe and is just sort of exploring what he wants to do next. But what I think is so remarkable is even if you think that they deserved what happened to them, it would also follow that both of them would be bitter about the experience. I mean, to have been destroyed by this person who is so much more powerful than you over something you totally forgotten, that's a bitter pill to swallow. And yet neither of them are. And, and I think that's to their credit. Both of them are, are, are resilient, strong people who just said, look, I'm, I, I can't control that this happened to me. I'm not going to let it ruin my life. I'm going to move on and I'm going to do something next. And that, that's where they, they both are. And look, to a certain degree, we, we have to give a little bit of credit to Peter and that Peter was willing to settle and let this thing go. You know, he wasn't, he didn't want to salt the earth after his victory or destroy them completely. He was willing to let them move on. And so I think if there's any happy ending in this, it's that, you know, everyone has sort of moved on to to, to whatever they're going to do next. Did Teal and Denton ever meet face-to-face after this thing happened? They, they did. It was, inc- I mean, just the idea of that is so insane that both these men who'd spent tens of millions of dollars fighting each other, that one had destroyed the other in court, the other had humiliated the other in, in the in the media. And they end up meeting after the verdict because, you know, even though it was a large verdict, eventually, you know, these things can be appealed and fought and and they can drag on for years to the point where no one actually gets the money. It's like the, the saying is that the lawyers are the ones who always win. And uh, Teal and Denton meet, they meet first at the house of a friend and then later again in, in a conference room in New York City. And they kind of, they hash this thing out and they say, you know, both of them are very suspicious of each other. Neither of them, you know, is willing to budge much, but they, 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 they come to kind of a hard piece. And so far that piece is held and they've both gone on and, and done other things. It had the Hulk turn out in all this. Is the, the sex tape gone? Well, the, the sex tape is mostly gone and, and look, he walked away with many millions of dollars so I think he's doing he's doing all right, but again, you know, I having won, I'm not sure how much sort of reflection and character comes from winning. I think he's actually quite proud of what happened. I think he thinks he improved the world by it. Again, that's his opinion, and we we should you know sort of probe that and and grant it while not necessarily agreeing with it wholeheartedly. But I think he you know he saw this as kind of the a big part of the third act of his life. Yeah, I mean, the Hulk had 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 a rough go going up into that thing. Uh, sons in yes. jail. Wife, his wife divorced him for and left him for a younger man. Daughter, you know, career really wasn't going that great. Um, so this kind of <laughs> yeah, this was a, this was a dark. This this the tape itself was the sort of culmination of like the darkest period of his life. And so perhaps the case ultimately is sort of closure. 
and what allows him to move on and, and, you know, do whatever he's going to do next. So I think there was a catharsis in it for him, for sure. So, I mean, this, throughout the book, you not only talk about sort of strategy and how to get things done, but you're also using it as a chance to explore our current media age. Yeah. And after this thing happened, the, the verdict came in favor for Hogan and people found out that Teal was the one that funded it. There was, like you said in the beginning, there's all this hand-wringing. Like, what does this mean for media? Does this mean like that billionaires can just take out media companies they don't like? What do you think are the implications of this case going forward in the, the media? I actually think the, the precedent legally is much less than people are, are worried about. Because the truth is, most media would never run this story to begin with. And so... Teal nailed them on a very narrow sort of invasion of privacy claim. And, and I think before Teal's involvement was revealed, that's what most legal experts thought as well. It's just when, a, when the context changes when you find out a billionaire brought it about. But I think the general idea of using these, using a lawsuit as a weapon to destroy someone to go after an enemy, I think there is some larger precedent there. I mean, look, Alex Jones just got sued multiple times for defamation. Donald Trump might get brought down by the Stormy Daniels case. James O'Keefe, the sort of conservative media provocateur, is, is fighting a number of legal battles. I think people are realizing that, oh, you know, just criticizing someone, you know, in an op-ed isn't really doing it anymore. And if you want to stop them, you have to pursue other, perhaps more involved or permanent means of doing so. Do you think other like blogs like Gawker, like this was a wake up call for them to like actually kind of have some ethics about what they decide to publish or not publish? I, th- I think so. I mean, uh, for probably for better and for worse, right? On the one hand, the media is going to be more conservative about, you know, tacking potentially litigious people. On the other hand, you know, they, Gawker should have thought twice before they ran this Hulk Hogan tape. They really, like, there's some argument, for instance, over whether Denton even knew that the Hulk Hogan tape was in Gawker's possession and that they were thinking about running it until after it was posted, which is insane. You know, the, the publisher of a media company should know before his website does something like that. And, and so hopefully it makes them more it makes them better at crossing their T's and dotting their I's, but hopefully doesn't make them unafraid. You know, I'm glad the New York Times ran its its expose on Harvey Weinstein or that the media reported on Bill Cosby. And it's embarrassing and shameful that they didn't do it earlier. But if you're going to do those stories, you better make sure, you know, you 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 better make sure you're bulletproof. And so that that's, I think, the balance that the media is going to have to figure out. So, you know, after writing this book, it's curious, what do you think were the big takeaways you got from just about getting stuff done, strategies? These are, these are ideas yeah. you've been thinking about a long time. So what, what, do you, what were the big takeaways for you personally? Well, so one, I think that idea of patience, right? You don't rush in. You know, few, I, I say like a, a fight breaks out, a conspiracy brews. And so part of, I think Teal gives, gives us a very interesting example here of just patiently waiting. And then, uh, you know, you get, you've talked about John Boyd, uh, before in, on, in articles and on the podcast. You know, he had this line. He said, a fighter pilot always goes through the back door, never the front. And what he means is that the, the, the fighter pilot looks for the, the weakness, looks for the opportunity. They don't go head on. And, and I think that's a strategic lesson here too, right? The reason Teal was able to win is that Gawker was overconfident and undefended in this area where they were taking risks that they shouldn't have been taking. And then, look, I think um, Teal's willingness to, to, to sort of get his hands dirty is a lesson, too. You know, it's very satisfying to go march in a protest or to donate money to a, polit- a politician or a cause that you support, or to sign a petition, right? But 
how effective are these things actually? And how often do you actually see if you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish? And so I think what Teal did is he was like, I'm going to solve this. He's like, no one else is going to solve it. I'm going to take matters in my own hands and I'm going to work really hard for a long time to solve this. And I think there's some strategic lessons there too. You know, if you're, I'm relatively pro second amendment, but if you, if you think we need gun control in this country, well, don't just yell about it but figure out what can actually be done. And that's going to involve compromise. That's going to involve collaboration. That's going to involve patience. That's going to involve the long game. You know, if you think Donald Trump is evil, don't just tweet about it, man. You're going to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to work at removing him from office or, or, you know, if you think there's a problem with suppressing free speech on college campuses, well, maybe you've got to find like Teal did the perfect representative case that helps you set a precedent that you want to set that protects the people that you want to protect, you know, and so on and so forth. So I think there, that's the real strategic lesson, which is that change is possible, but it's not going to come just because you think that it's right. It has to be made real. Well, Ryan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? So the book is uh, Conspiracy. It's on Amazon, everywhere books are sold. And uh, you can go to my website at uh, ryanholiday.net. All right, Ryan Holiday. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Ryan Holiday. He is the author of the book Conspiracy. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out his website, ryanholiday.net. While you're there, sign up for his reading list. Email newsletters, one of my favorite newsletters I get. He shares what he's been reading gotten a lot of recommendations from Matt. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash conspiracy, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, please consider sharing the podcast with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. Really appreciate that. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.